0: What Brings You In Today is produced by medical students at the University of Wisconsin. As medical students, we are not fully trained physicians or licensed to practice medicine. The information presented here is for entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, treatment, or education. To preserve privacy and maintain patient confidentiality, identifying details about patients were changed for this podcast. All opinions expressed belong to the speaker, not their institution or employer. Hola, I'm Mayra Kuit-Ponce, and I'm Lee Berman, and this is What Brings You In Today, sharing stories and experiences from within the medical field.
1: So tell me, what brings you in today?
0: As medical students around the country transitioned to remote learning due to the COVID-19 pandemic, Our teachers and mentors continued caring for patients within hospitals and clinics that were rapidly adapting to our new reality. Today, we have Dr. Christine Seibert, an internist and Dean for Medical Student Education and Services at UWSMPH on the effects of COVID-19 on the medical field, on her patients, and beyond.
2: Ode to my ladies. For the third time this week, I struggle with what to write is the official medical certifier of death on the state of Wisconsin, vital records office form in the cause of death box. It is ironic that during the past two weeks while attending on the inpatient wards at University Hospital in Madison, I was not called upon to perform this function. But in my outpatient role as a primary care physician, death form completion recently has become far too commonplace. Without a doubt, our lives have been upended by COVID-19, and we know that the most vulnerable among us, as for most other health conditions, are disproportionately affected. We all agonizingly watch our healthcare colleagues across the world struggle against the virus and bear witness to the economic hardships felt by so many in our community and elsewhere. Equally important is what former U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy, an internist, Dr. Ellen Chen have coined the social recession of covid nineteen in a recent article for The Atlantic. Drs Murthy and Chen predicted that quote, as people around the world retreat behind closed doors and sever connections with others, the damage covid nineteen causes could be no less profound and long-lasting. Unquote. Here is my first-hand attestation of that truth. Anne was a self-proclaimed super grandma in her late 70s, who I've taken care of for more than 20 years. She had a never-ending supply of proud grandma attire, and at our last visit, while wearing her eggshell blue sweatshirt that read, my favorite people call me grandma, she again shared how her family propelled her forward, despite the the metastatic cancer that she had lived with for more than a decade. In early March... As nursing homes and assisted living facilities wisely started closing their doors to visitors, Anne's family could no longer make their nearly daily visits to the facility. Nor, uh, since she was a wheelchair user, could they lovingly carry her up the steps to their homes for family dinners each and every Sunday. At the end of March, Anne was admitted to the hospital with a new brain metastasis and due to appropriate COVID-19 mitigation policy was unable to have her family at her bedside as they surely would have been. When I walked into her her hospital room one afternoon, her face lit up as soon as she figured out who I was beneath my mask and shield. I had a hard time leaving because she had so many stories and she was seemingly starved for familiar human contact. About 10 days after her hospital discharge, I got my first death notification phone call of the week, which told me that Ann had died in her sleep At the nursing home where she was rehabbing after brain surgery. My second patient, Diane, was in her 80s, and coincidentally, we went to the same Chicago area high school. We figured this out because her husband, Joe, before his death a few years ago, still wore his Letterman jacket, which I immediately recognized. Over the years, especially after Joe developed cognitive impairment, he regularly regaled me with the same story of his playoff winning basketball shot in the same gym where I had a far less storied sports career many years later. Diane took meticulous care of her husband Joe as his memory worsened, leaving him detailed instructions about food prep and his agenda for each day's activities while she still worked part-time at a karate studio where she had uh, very proudly earned her black belt just a few years earlier in her 70s. Diane herself developed rapidly progressive Parkinson's disease and dementia and for the past few years had resided in an assisted living facility. Her daughter saw her nearly every day on her way home from teaching elementary school. After these visits stopped in March due to COVID-19, Diane became progressively withdrawn, despite the staff's best attempts to help her use the phone to call her daughter. A few days after her 80th birthday, Diane died with only her daughter at her side and her other loved ones on FaceTime. I got the call notifying me of her death two days after I heard about Anne. My third patient, Caroline, was in her mid-80s and gave me one of the most unusual and heartfelt gifts as a physician. She was a successful and prolific romance novel writer even into her 80s, and she wrote a character in my honor as one of her novel's heroines. When she presented me with my novel, I was a bit taken aback by the cover illustration of a very buxom long-haired brunette who fortunately bore little resemblance, uh, but I have cherished cherished this book ever since. About a year ago, uh, Carolyn began to have uncharacteristic troubles remembering names and important details of her life. And she also began seeing small gnomes on the patio outside of her window. She too was diagnosed with dementia and had a rapid decline, necessitating admission to a memory care facility. In March, her family tried regular window visits to make up for the in person visits they were no longer able to make, but these had to be almost immediately suspended because Caroline became upset when she could not reconcile why she could see her family in the window, yet their voices came only from the phone in her hand. This woman who told me every visit that her family was everything to her, quickly became non-communicative once their visit stopped and she died three days ago, my third such call of the week. While it is not correct to list COVID-19 infection as the cause of death on their death certificates, I am convinced that it played a leading role in the demise of these three lovely, gregarious, and strong matriarchs who were completely adored and fiercely loved. To battle my sadness about no longer having visits with each of them, I choose to reflect and remember them as their engaging and vital selves, wearing sweet sweatshirts, showing me a hard-earned black belt and proudly handing me the novel with the beautiful brunette on the cover.
1: Dr. Seibert, thank you again for sharing your piece with us and for spending this time with us. I think you bring a lot of interesting points to this conversation, and you bring a perspective of how um, this pandemic has affected patients in different ways that go beyond their physical health. Um, but you also touch on a point that's very important, and it's how this situation has affected patient-physician interactions. So can you talk to us a little bit more about how patient-physician interactions are important and how... This past few months have affected those.
2: Yeah, thanks for that question. I think it's. Um, I think this really make makes even more real the importance of the connection with your patients and how um, critical that is to their health, their overall health, their well being, their feeling that they're being cared for, their trust in you. You know that is really all about the connection that we make with the patient and. It's harder when you're not in person to make that connection. It's certainly not impossible, but it's harder. You know, I really have a more than 20 year history of being in the same room with some of my patients, looking them in the eye, um, you know, nodding my head when they talk to me, sometimes, you know, putting my hand on their hand when they're telling me something difficult. Um, Some of my patients hug me. Um, Because that's just their huggy patients and that's just how they are. And um, so that connection is very much lost in these uh, either, you know, what we call telehealth visits, which is either um, purely by phone or by video. And so, um, That's harder, again, not impossible, but it's it's harder to make that connection, to feel, uh, to to have empathy come through a video or a phone call um, and real connection. So it just means we have to try harder. I have to try harder to really listen. It's easy to get, uh, when I'm on a computer um, or on a video, it's easy to get distracted. I'm worrying about documenting things. um, And I have to remember to really keep looking at the patient since it's so much harder to uh, kind of keep that connection going. But on the other hand, let me tell you the positive. I've done some video visits with some of my older adults. Um, One lady in particular comes to mind where she was sitting on her uh, porch uh, of her farm uh, with her iPad and... um, she kept asking her family members to come by and say hello. So it was awesome. I had you know, I had her and then every once in a while, another face would come into view and she'd say, oh, this is my daughter, Sandy. Sandy, meet Dr. Seibert. You've never met Dr. Seibert before. And then she'd say, Joe, come on over. I'm talking to my doctor. And I could barely get her to talk about um, her diabetes or anything because she just wanted to introduce me to the place that she loved and the people that she loved. And so that was a different kind of connection. And I think one that I would never get if we were in, in you know, a typical examination room at my clinic. So uh, while some things are lost, I think some things can certainly be gained.
0: Right, and I've actually done a couple of telemedicine visits on my family medicine rotation. And I agree with you that there is something nice and kind of fun about seeing patients on their home turf for a change. Yeah, I agree, yeah. Um, Dr. Seiber, another really interesting point that your piece makes has to do with this tension that you describe between the necessity of social distancing for both the good of your patient, but also the good of the community, and the consequences of isolation. So I'm wondering how you've been dealing with these two concerns that seem to be at odds with each other with your patients recently.
2: Yeah. Um, that's a really interesting question that I think has a couple of parts. One, one is um, with most of my patients um, are really in the high-risk groups. So a lot of my conversations with people is how to protect them, Right. Um, you know how to help them navigate how much risk is too much risk. Um, should they go to the grocery store, shouldn't they? Um, should the Meals on Wheels person, um, can, should they continue to get Meals on Wheels? Uh, does the meals on wheels person come into the home? Do they leave it on the doorstep? You know how is that going to work um, how does how do they negotiate grandchildren children are huge points of negotiation um, you know helping people understand the risk involved, but yet really trying to understand people's values, their priorities you know uh, trying to f- there's nothing zero risk so you know trying to figure out what what brings them joy and how do we get that in the least risky way uh you know can they sit in the backyard with their grandchildren and can they stand it not to hug them and if they have to hug them I, you know it's okay but just understand what you're you know kind of doing with with all of that and just recognizing you're taking some risk and and the family i had a family the other day i take care of three generations of uh, the grandparents the parents and then uh, older grandchildren who are now in their 20s and um, some of the grandchildren are going back to college, so I had a conversation with the grandparents the other day. How's that going to look? You know, they've been with them all summer, um, but how's that going to look when they're now exposed to all these different people when they go back to college? And even inviting to say, if if it would be helpful for me to be part of a family conversation, please, you know, call upon me. Happy to do that. Um, so again, not judgmentally, but just sorting it, sorting it through. So that's I think where I've been. been at with this which is a little different than i think if i had a lot more younger patients the conversation might be maybe a little less about them um, and their risk although certainly they're they're at risk but just lower risk but really more about how are you going to keep your parents grandparents healthy how are you going to keep your community healthy um you know what's what's your responsibility in that what do you think about that but it's really no, no different than you know, many conversations I have about risk and benefit. Right? It's mm-hmm. always weighing things. There's never any treatment or or diagnostic evaluation that's a hundred percent for sure. So it's always trying to figure out what's um, what's the risks and benefits, and nothing is usually without some sort of side effect or risk. So helping people understand what that is. So this is really just another version of that conversation.
1: I think I want to highlight something you said and you mentioned was the importance of providing adequate education and information to the patients so that they can make informed decisions and i think it must be very hard in these times where everyone seems to have an opinion and there seems to be so much information or lack thereof so i think i want to ask you how does it feel for your profession to be in the forefront of this pandemic and to be in the forefront of every conversation around, where everyone seems to have an opinion about what's going on. How do you manage that?
2: You know, um, as a physician, it's surprising how often um, people are asking, my friends ask questions or even acquaintance ask questions Um, you know, in the past, it would be people coming up to me at dinner parties, lifting up their shirt, showing me a skin lesion and asking me if I think it it looks like cancer. Or, uh, you know, my brother's husband just got diagnosed with some disease I can't quite remember the name of, and he's going to get a medicine called X. What do you think? You know, so I really do get asked, I think many of us get asked a lot in social situations um, about kind of our opinions about things and um so i'm not i'm not uh this this is not foreign territory for sure mm-hmm. uh, i think what's a little bit different about this is you know the stakes are higher you know somebody lifting up their shirt and showing me their skin lesion is really important to that to that person and um but it, this is this is a bigger deal this is this is people asking me opinions about whether or not they should get on airplanes or take trips or uh, go to the grocery store or go to a restaurant so I think that's one thing that's different. I think the other thing that's different is it's hard to have conversations about things I don't agree with with some of my friends and and not appear judgmental and still um, I still want to remain someone that friends or family can ask questions of and um, and that, and really that's true with my patients they they also may be making choices that I don't agree with so how. How can I share that I might not agree with that, or provide an alternative perspective without um, I think right now with everything being so charged, uh, unfortunately, politically, about mask wearing, et cetera, um, you know, how do I keep the conversation flowing um, and not stop conversation because people feel judged? So um, so I think that's what's different about this than other of the myriad, you know, medical conversations I have all the time with friends and family who are looking for an opinion, a perspective or advice. And it's a really important conversation. So it's, it's actually a privilege to be part of conversations or that people feel like my opinion would, would matter to them. Um, I'm, I'm glad to do it. I'm, I'm happy that people feel like I'm a source of truth. And so um, I take that responsibility really seriously.
0: Do you think that the patient physician relationship that we talked about earlier has that been affected by having these tough conversations about politically charged topics or has the relationship enabled you to have them?
2: Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. I don't feel like any conversation recently that I can think of with my patient has ever turned charged or or in a way, at least I hope not. In a way that made someone feel like they couldn't come back and talk to me about it again. And I guess I have practice with some of that. When um, you know, when when we talk about things like smoking or people's alcohol use, uh, those are hard conversations. You're asking people about things that they feel shame about or that they feel angry that you're asking about sometimes. So, um, so I think as a primary care doctor, I do have practice in kind of navigating these tough spots. So I, I think. I don't think it's made anything more difficult and I but I do think you're right there might be again kind of a bit of a silver lining is it it's allowed us to engage in conversations about values about family about what's important to people that may actually be deeper conversations than just about their insulin or their anti medications so um, I think anytime you're talking about values, perspectives, um, you know, that's going to be a connecting, joining conversation. So I think they're, um, that's a good point. I, I never really thought about these conversations in that way, but I, I think you may be right.
1: And I think one of the things that you mentioned is the importance of the role of the physician in education, but also aiding throughout this difficult time. So I guess, just for our benefit, if you had to give a piece of advice to the medical student in this time, in this era, what would that be?
2: I really worry about, um, I worry a lot about our students. And um, some of my worries are that, you know, I'm, I'm a seasoned, I'm a, I'm a 25-year physician. I've seen a lot Um, You know, I've worked in inner city emergency rooms. I've I've worked during the time of the AIDS epidemic. Um, I've had a lot of experience with hard things. And I think this is a really hard thing to have happen to you early in your training. And I think what's even harder about this is that um, the usual mechanisms that we would have to, um, to help students are really, often physical, right? We would bring people together to talk about it or have someone come to my office and chat or uh, that type of thing. And, and, or have students uh, aggregating with each other, recognizing, you know, administration or myself, I'm I'm certainly not the only one that can provide comfort. People get comfort in each other. And, um, and that's harder, right? You're not even sometimes in, uh, in, in rooms, in team rooms in the hospital, you're all trying to keep six feet apart and masks on and and have as little time in rooms together as possible, you know, which doesn't really lend to a a time to be sharing about, you know, kind of fears or things. So, so I guess my, um, my advice then, that's really what you asked me about is my Mm -hmm. advice. Uh, My advice is, uh, you know, don't isolate, don't hide under a rock. If you are sad, if you are stressed, if you are lonely, if you're scared, tell someone. Um, it is totally normal during all of this uncertainty and craziness to feel any of those things. And um, it's uh, we're here. You know, We may not be here in exactly the same way that we were always here, where you could knock on my door or knock on Dr. McIntosh's door and um, enter into the office or make an appointment, um, but we're here. And um, and your phase directors are here. Your attending physicians, if you're somebody who's uh, out in the clinical world, your attending physicians are here. The residents are here. Um, we know this is hard, and um, just please don't uh, don't isolate, don't don't hide, don't deny. You know, let us know, and let's talk about it and figure out a way forward because there is a way forward, and uh, there is a way for us to. Uh, help any of our medical students through this if they are struggling.
1: Thank you so much for your <laughs> advice and your insight into all this um, situation. I know it's not an easy one, and it has been very unprecedented. No one could have ever prepared for this. But I think, as a student, it has been very it has been very exciting, even though it has been difficult to see kind of the connection and interplay between medicine, science, public health, and all those things we're taught about um, come into play here in this situation and in such a fast pace and in real time. So I'm glad to be training um, in this moment so that I can contribute to my surroundings and my community in different
2: ways. I'm so glad to hear that. That's such a, um, that's such a hopeful way to think about something that could be hard and I do think with every hard thing there is an amazing opportunity for for you're absolutely right to see I mean this is really the most important thing that has happened in my career and you're seeing it you know I, I guess I framed it in a very negative light mm-hmm. um, but I do think that there is Absolutely, just a wonderful opportunity to see, see your your, your attending, see the residents, see kind of the, the resilience of people and the, the heart and soul of people and the way that everyone is kind of banding together to get something done. I, I was, at, uh, as you know from my essay, I was attending physician back in April and um, I was really fearful of going into the hospital and just everything was gonna be new and different. And boy, after about a day, I have to admit, it was one of the best experiences I had because people were so focused and so collaborative in a way that just really surpassed anything in the past. And I think it really got people down to the um, essential elements of us all working together for the patient. And that was amazing. So I'm so glad that you that you feel hopeful and that you feel like it is a little exciting and uh, interesting and uh, educational uh, in the best possible way uh, to really laying a foundation uh, of how you're gonna respond to um, emergencies and adversity for the rest of your career. Uh, so I think that's it's a great way to have examples early on. So I, I'm glad that it it doesn't feel all, worrisome and uh negative and that it it does feel like an opportunity for you all as well i'm I'm glad to hear that all right well
0: thank you so much dr seibert it was great talking with you
2: same i'm really glad that you guys decided to do this I, i hope that it's a um a source of interest and and maybe even inspiration for other uh for other listeners, and it's fun. It's fun to listen to stories and it's fun to to talk to people. So thank you for, um, thank you. It it really is an honor uh, to be chosen to be a a participant or an interviewee with you. Um, I really do feel honored by that. And so thank you for this opportunity.
1: As COVID-19 rages on, it is important that we recognize how this pandemic has affected not only our patients' lives but our own as well. We really appreciate healthcare and frontline workers and truly hope to emulate that dedication and empathy throughout our careers.
0: Thanks for listening. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at WBYIT underscore UWSNPH. We'll see you for our follow-up in two weeks.
2: Have a nice day. Funding for What Brings You In Today is provided by the Kern Foundation.